So this morning, uh, I began um, by talking about the, uh, the tradition of, of liberty in America. And I essentially began with the lead up to the American Revolution. This afternoon, I'm actually going to go further back in time to the very, very beginning of English settlement in North America. And uh, it, the, the punchline of the story is um, this collection of colonies, which we uh, sort of assume um, were this quaint place um, where they baked apple pies and wore powdered wigs and tri-cornered hats and, you know, danced minuets and, uh, you know, the sort of colonial Williamsburg version of colonial America, um, which is quite good, by the way. I mean, Williamsburg is a fantastic place, but they're interpreting, you know, the metropolis of Virginia, such as it was, in the late 18th century. But if you go back more than 100 years to the early 1600s, the land that you see is uh, a place of much chaos and commotion and destruction and starvation and death. And uh, the story of British North America is, is that it's almost miraculous that it ever took root. And uh, if, if that sounds like an exaggeration, consider the first real attempt at establishing a permanent settlement in North America um, was a Roanoke. You know, in the 1580s, uh, the English planted a small colony at, at Roanoke, um, and we know the, the basic story. Um, the settlers got off the boat, and the boat left, and then the Spanish Armada attacked Great Britain, and Britain kind of, you know, forgot about Roanoke for a little bit, and then they remembered, and then they went back, and what they found was a tree, just a tree. And on that tree was written the cryptic, mysterious word, Croatoan. And all of the dwellings had been taken down and dismantled. There really wasn't a trace of the people. And this great mystery of the lost colony, you know, what happened to Roanoke, has occasioned a, a lot of different uh, theories, um, you know, maybe, maybe all of which can be partially valid. It's, it's possible that the, the people were killed by local Indians. It's possible that the people ran off to live with the local Indians. There is a, a, a tribe called Croatoan. There's also an island called Croatoan. Maybe they went off to live on this island um, and, then, and then met their end there. Maybe uh, all, there are all a bunch of different theories. Some are maybe less plausible than others. I have a, a friend whose wife uh, was a Croatian-American, and apparently every ethnicity, every ethnicity seems to have its, you know, we founded America, we discovered America story. I remember my parents had this book called How the Celts Discovered America. Well, supposedly the Croatians believe that the Croatians discovered America, and their theory is that the people of Roanoke went off to live with the Croatians. Um, who knows? It could have been, maybe there was a spacecraft that, you know, beamed them up and probed them. Who knows? Who knows what happened? Um, except that I think the mystery is partially unraveled when we take a look at what almost happened at the two successive attempts, these one successful attempts at English colonization, um, first in Jamestown, Virginia, which was established in 1607, and then in Plymouth, Massachusetts, in 1620. And, uh, you know, Jamestown, which just celebrated the 400th anniversary of the settlement of Jamestown, um, Jamestown, while in the end, I suppose, a victory story, uh, it did survive, uh, in the beginning, probably seemed a lot like Roanoke. I, I bet that the people of Jamestown um, had a pretty, pretty good I idea what may have happened at Roanoke. Because Jamestown um, was a story of misery, 
It was a story of suffering. It was a story of death. Um, so welcome to Jamestown. We're going to explore what it was like to live there in the first few years. Um, Jamestown, I, I, I tell my students, was kind of like a particularly lame fraternity party in a swamp where everybody died. Um, it, uh, it, was, it was a particularly lame fraternity party because nearly everyone there was male. Um, the majority of the uh, settlers, about 85% in the first couple of years, um, were, were men. And they were not only men, they were young men. Um, most were in their 20s, some were in their teens, a few were in their 30s. I'm 44 years old, I'd be like the, the old man of, of Jamestown. Um, and, and that is perhaps part of uh, the reason for the, the suffering um, that took place in what would be for a while Virginia's capital. Um, when you think about coming up with a plan for colonization, if you wanted to you know, have success, sending a bunch of young guys I mean, not known, again, I'm generalizing, but you know, young men are not known as being like the most responsible people in the world, <laughs> right? And almost all of them were single, so they you know, weren't, uh, their, their, their actions weren't um, guided by considerations for um, wives and children um, who might depend upon them. Um, and, and so there they are in Jamestown. And uh, in addition to the fact that they are so young and they are so male, um, they're also uh, so not used to the frontier that they discover themselves planted in. I mean, Virginia is a strange new world for these Englishmen. Um, it is a strange place uh, with strange people. Um, the Powhatan Indians um, were, were a, a group on whom they would both fight um, and also rely upon for food. Uh, it was a place with strange diseases. Uh, a number of people were struck down by malaria. Um, and they settled uh, Jamestown on, on this little island, barely connected uh, to the land, because they were also concerned about another people, not just the Powhatans, but also the Spanish. The Spanish, of course, had established their presence in the New World before the Virginians had. The Spanish already occupied Florida. Um, they were worried that the Spanish would discover them. And, and to try to avoid being sighted by the Spanish, they, they planted their settlement up the James River, you know, off of, Chesa off of the Chesapeake, up uh, the James River, um, at this spot where the river was still navigable, um, where they still had access to the ocean, where they still had some shelter from, from uh, storms. Um, but still, this is essentially a swamp. And uh, I think that might be a factor as well, especially when you consider that the, the people of Jamestown um, were living there at a time of great drought. Um, if you look at the, the rings of trees that were standing at the time that, that Jamestown was established, you see for those years when Jamestown was established that the rings are, are very narrow. Um, so there's an indication that there was a drought. So all of these, these things help us to understand um, what happened. And what happened was just a mass catastrophe. Every year, new people would be brought over and planted in Jamestown by the Virginia Company of London. And every year, the majority of those people would die. And, and, and the level of death, the level of starvation was the number one killer. Some were struck down in conflict with the Indians, a small number. Uh, a somewhat larger number died of disease. But the vast majority starved. And the worst time of all was the winter of 1609 and 1610. There were 500 people in Virginia at the start of that winter. And by spring, 
only 60 remained alive. One man chopped up his wife and salted her down. Others dug up graves to eat their corpses. I mean, this was a, a, a time of, of just unmitigated disaster. And it is a mystery that, to a great degree, has baffled historians. To, to what do we attribute this? And again, there are a number of theories, and, and I think that they all have some merit. I think the fact that you know, this is a predominantly young and predominantly male colony, um, and not settled, say, by families, I think that has some merit. I'm guessing that these people were not particularly responsible. Another factor is it's wrong to call them settlers. They really weren't settlers. Jamestown maybe was intended to be a permanent settlement, but the people who inhabited it were adventurers. They all intended to get rich and go back to England. So they didn't really have sort of a, a long-term outlook on the establishment of this colony. Um, so per perhaps that uh, did not provide them with the right incentive to shelter themselves properly and provide for themselves uh, as far as growing food. Although it's mystifying, um, why they would starve. Now we understand that there was a drought, but we also understand that they were getting a lot of their corn from the Indians. The Indians wanted to keep them around because the Indians understood that, you know, despite the weirdness of these people, I mean, they were laboring under the hot sun wearing plate mail, um, probably didn't smell very nice, and, and certainly seemed inept at, at providing for themselves. They did have these friends who came on ships loaded down with neat things from Europe, which they had never seen before you know, including um, guns, which the Powhatan could use um, to establish their dominance over other native uh, tribes in the area. Um, so they got food, they got corn from the Powhatan Indians. The Powhatan Indians, you know, despite the drought, they could grow corn. They were successful at it. And you think about the rivers are teeming with fish and the woods are abounding with, with deer um, and other game. And, and, and yet these people are starving to death. Why? Another theory is, uh, well, it's because these, these folks, they didn't have the skill set necessary for success in agriculture. Um, typically, these young men came from one of two groups. Um, many were the second and third and fourth born sons of members of the English gentry. If you were the first born son, um, you know, life was good. You inherited everything. If you were second or third or fourth born, life was a little bit more complicated, and you had to find a way to, to make your way in the world. You could become an officer in the army or the navy. Uh, you could become a professor at Oxford or Cambridge. You could become a member of the clergy. They had a, uh, a, a terrible um, cultural belief that if you were a member of the gentry, uh, it was beneath you to engage in commerce. So uh, becoming a merchant was pretty much closed off. Um, so what, what to do? These people, they thought that Jamestown was their ticket to success. How ironic is that thought? Um, they thought that if they went to, to Virginia, they would find in Virginia what the Spanish had found in the New World. They thought that they would find gold. So the Virginia Company of London is, is really uh, a group of investors who are underwriting this settlement so that gold can be discovered and brought back. And these people would bring back gold, they imagined, and, and they would be made in the shade. They would be made and set forever and they could continue to live their lives. But of course, there's no gold in Virginia. And uh, they discovered really nothing but, but horror. You have the gentry, 
you also have the people who they brought for their mining expedition, mostly urban artisans, you know, people who were smiths of various sorts, who would be good at, at working with metals, metals that they never found. So none of these people were particularly good at farming, although, you know, they wouldn't be as pathetic there as we would nowadays. I mean, you know, this is still the 1600s, so they're, uh, they, they're familiar with farming, but that was not their, their predominant occupation. So you have these, uh, these people who are young, perhaps irresponsible. Uh, they are, um, you know, spoiled uh, folks who, you know, grew up in, in lives of, of ease or uh, urban people. Um, who are not used to the ways of, of the farm. People say because of the drought, perhaps the water that they drank had uh, an unhealthy level of salination, which you know, apparently if you drink water that's too salty, uh, it could be debilitating for your brain. Um, so that's another theory. Um, but there's another factor, one that's often overlooked. And, and I think it's the key factor. Um, and I think it's the key factor because um, as I'll show, we see it taking place at Plymouth, where some of the other factors that weighed down Jamestown weren't present. And the factor is how they organized themselves to grow food. The Virginia Company of London wanted its adventurers, it wanted the people of Jamestown, to be working for its profit. It didn't want them to be off on their own trying to profit for themselves. And, and so the rule was that people would go out into a common field and everybody would work together side by side, equally, pitching in, cheerfully. And at the end of the growing season, they would all equally share in the bounty that would result. What could possibly go wrong? Except, what did go wrong? You could, I mean, you could imagine the scene, people uh, going out into the field, many of them wearing their, their metal armor, their woolen pants, you know, weighed down with this because they were afraid that, that Indians might, uh, you know, shoot at them from the forest. It's hot under the Virginia sun. It's unpleasant. I mean, working on a farm, that is hard work. Most Americans are denied the uh, ability to appreciate that, that these days, but it is hard work. And you can imagine one person deciding, oh, I don't really feel very well, and calling in sick, and you know, going back to the, uh, the settlement, um, and others deciding, you know, I, I think I'm going to do that too, and then you're you know, one of the few that remain, and you feel like a total chump, so what's the point? Um, when, you, when you look at the uh, people of Jamestown after that miserable, starving winter, Sir Thomas uh, Dale, the newly appointed governor, arrived. And, and he observed that in May, in May, nothing was planted except some few seeds put into a private garden or two. And meanwhile, he found the inhabitants engaged in their daily and usual works, bowling in the streets. I mean, it is just almost unfathomable to, to appreciate the level of idleness that was contributing to the demise of so many of these people. And it's so interesting to note his description of where the seeds were planted, a private garden or two, which incidentally were illegal gardens. You weren't supposed to plant on your own. 
They didn't want people having private property. They didn't want people trying to amass their own fortunes. They were all supposed to be working toward the good of the company. And as shareholders in the company, they would profit. And yet we see what happened. And, and Thomas Dale saw what was happening. And he made a decision without consulting the, uh, the, the board of the company back in London that he was going to change things. And he divided up the land. And he said, every person will get a plot of land and every person will be responsible for growing their own food. And if at the end of the growing season, they have a bounty of food, it's theirs to enjoy or they can sell it uh, to others if they wish. And if at the end of the growing season, they don't have any food, well then they're going to have to try to buy it from other people. And guess what? The starvation at Jamestown stopped. In uh, 1615, a settler named Ralph uh, Hamer uh, noted that when our people were fed out of the common store and labored jointly in the manuring of the ground and planting corn, glad was that man that could slip from his labor. Nay, the most honest of them in general business would take so much faithful and true pains in a week as now he will do in a day. So private property turned it around. Getting the incentive system right turned it around. And while they never would discover gold in Jamestown, they would soon discover something that was almost as good as gold and provided this, this fledgling colony with a reason to exist economically. And, and that, of course, was tobacco. So Jamestown is a story of near disaster. And uh, as I said, there are a number of contributing factors, and I don't want to dismiss any of them. Um, men arrived who were young. They were single. Uh, they were from uh, not the middling sort of, of English society, but they tended to be people who were raised in a life of, of relative luxury or people who were urban artisans, not accustomed to farming. There was a drought. They uh, had uneven relations with the Indians. I mean, all of these things would certainly be a burden upon the colony. How do I know that it was the, the system by which they organized agriculture that, that dealt them almost the deciding blow. If you look at Plymouth, if you look at the Plymouth colony in Massachusetts, almost none of those factors were present. And yet still, half, half of the settlers at Plymouth died of starvation because they too had collectivized agriculture. The, the settlers at Plymouth I mean, these, these are the people who should be the stories of success in the new world. I mean, first of all, they, they crossed the ocean with the highest ideals, the highest ambitions. People oftentimes, I think unfairly, uh, sort of scold um, the original people who established Virginia because they were just in it for the money. And, and historians typically like to exalt the, the, the settlers of Plymouth because they crossed the ocean as did the Puritans who in the great wave of migration um, would, would join them in the 1630s, they crossed the ocean to create a new and improved England. A, a, a place that one of their leaders, John Winthrop, would say would be like a, a, a city on a hill, a, a beacon of, of light and hope to the rest of the world, an example of, of a good and godly society, so brilliant, so, so shining that people back in old England could look west across the horizon and see glittering in the distance this new and improved England where people would get it right. 
And really, when you think about it, the courage of their convictions to, to, to cross the ocean in the 1600s, to just make that journey was a leap of faith. I mean, the survival rates were very low. I mentioned I have, I have two kids. I mean, I would sooner put them on, on, a, on a Russian rocket and send them to the International Space Station than, than I would put them on the Mayflower and allow them to cross the ocean in 1620. I, I'd have a much better, better uh, you know, hopes for their, for their well-being. And, and of course, on the International Space Station, you can be in regular contact with Earth. Now, these people were really cutting themselves off from home. But of course, they left with their homes, with their possessions, with their families. The people of Plymouth um, had been an active church congregation. That's what tied them all together. They suffered uh, religious persecution in England because they, they were dissenters. Um, they were separatists from the Church of England because they thought that the Church of England was too Catholic, that it hadn't you know, thoroughly undergone the Protestant Reformation. And so they first uh, sought refuge in um, Holland, and there they found that you know, Holland was tolerant, but to their taste it was almost too tolerant, too cosmopolitan. Their kids were wearing wooden shoes and listening to ABBA and speaking Hollish or Dutch, and, uh, and, and so they, they regathered themselves together. They went to Plymouth, England, and they departed from Plymouth, England, and they landed in what they called um, Plymouth in, in this new world of Massachusetts. So they settled as, as extended families, oftentimes three generations traveling together. They, they were middling people. They weren't uh, the spoiled um, aristocrats of Jamestown, and they weren't the, the sort of feckless urban artisans of Jamestown. These were people who had experience growing food, and these were people who um, arrived at a place with a, a bountiful supply of fresh spring water. Um, there was no drought in Plymouth at the time of their arrival. Everything that was going against the people of Jamestown seemed to be going in favor of the people of Plymouth. Except again, they all were told by the uh, Virginia uh, company, the same uh, joint stock company that, uh, that underwrote the, the, the Jamestown expedition, and they were told that they were not to, to have their own land, they were not to try to enrich themselves, that in return for the financial backing that made this settlement possible, for a period of seven years, they were supposed to devote their time to the fur trade so that they could enrich the investors back home and the shareholders of, of, of the company. And many of them were shareholders of the company as well. And so they would go out and uh, they would leave their houses and they would go into the common fields. And there happily, they would work side by side and they would contribute equally um, to, to, the, to the work. And at the end of the season, again, they would all share equally in the bounty. Again, what could possibly go wrong? Except it went terribly wrong. It went terribly wrong. And about half of the settlers starved until 1623, when the new governor, William Bradford, <clears throat> ordered that the pilgrims should set corn every man for his own particular, and that and in that regard trust to themselves. And he assigned to every family 
a parcel of land and ranged all boys and youth under some family. In other words, if these uh, boys were uh, unattached to a family already, they were assigned to one. This had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious. So as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means. So again, once again, it's private property that is saving the day. It's getting the incentive uh, structure right that is saving the day. And the, uh, the success that greeted this new system of agriculture at, at Plymouth um, was, was, was just amazing. The bounty was tremendous. And you don't have to just take it from William Bradford. Um, I have photographic evidence of, of, of just how successful it was. So we have, in many respects, capitalism saving America. And yet my story is, is not done. The, uh, the people of Jamestown and the people of Plymouth would find that economic development would not only provide them with great opportunity, um, it would not only provide them uh, with great wealth and comfort, it would not only extend their ability to survive and prosper, but it would also provide them with the temptation to use the power of government to unfairly benefit themselves at the expense of others. And, and, and where I want to take this is in Virginia, the story of the rise of slavery, and in Massachusetts, the story of the Salem witch trials. Now, slavery in Virginia was something that was not the, it was not the dominant form of labor until the 1650s and 60s and 70s. Early on in Virginia, when they first started to grow uh, tobacco, most of the labor force were Englishmen who were indentured servants. The way indentured servitude would work is if you were a, uh, an Englishman, if you were really desperate, um, and, and this seemed to be the best possible opportunity for you, you would uh, deal with an agent, probably in London, an agent who worked for planters back in Virginia. And with the agent, you would negotiate a contract. And these are individual contracts, so they're usually somewhat different. But typically, you would pledge to work for a planter in Virginia for four or five or six or seven years. In exchange, um, they would pay for your passage across the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, at the end of your term of indenture, they would grant you a, a quantity of land, usually 50 acres or 75 acres. And meanwhile, back in Virginia, we have the government of Virginia established in 1619, the House of Burgesses, subsidizing the importation of indentured servants through what they called the headright system. So for every person who was brought over from, from England to Virginia, uh, the, the person who sponsored their voyage would be granted 50 or 75 acres. So that was the land that was usually built into the contract for the indentured servants. And the indentured servants um, would oftentimes work out in the field, sometimes side by side with the man who owned their labor. The indentured servants um, also, after 1619, might have worked side by side with people from Africa. 1619 is, is a really fateful year in American history. Um, some really amazing stuff happened in 1619, and some really terrible stuff happened in 1619. In 1619, we have the first really profitable 
uh, tobacco harvest in Virginia. We also have the creation of the House of Burgesses, which I just mentioned. Um, the House of Burgesses is the New World's first representative assembly. You can still uh, go to Virginia today. You can still go to Jamestown. And uh, you can see the site where the House of Burgesses was established. It is uh, now covered with an 18th century church building. Originally in 1619, there was another church building there. It was a meeting house where the men of the colony gathered together for the first time to, to, to make the laws under which they would live. And you can see in the floor of that church, uh, this glass panel, and beneath it are the original bricks, the original foundation of the House of Burgesses, you know, the foundation of representative government in America. I mean, so right there at Jamestown, you could see the origins of American freedom. And yet, at that same place, just about 100 yards away, that same year, 1619, arrived at a wharf, a Dutch ship that had been blown off course with its cargo of about two dozen kidnapped Africans, the first slaves in Virginia. So American freedom and American slavery, they really begin at the same place and at the same time. But while in the early days there were some people from Africa, they, they were not relied upon as the, the, the main source of labor. In part because slavery, it just wasn't economically viable. Do you know why? You know, there's a reason too why early on uh, the headright system seemed such a good deal to planters. They'd bring over these indentured servants from England. After their term of indenture was, was over, they would owe them the land. But most of those indentured servants were never given the land. Can you guess why? They died. They didn't survive long enough. They didn't survive the four or five or six or seven years of their indenture. And so that land was retained by the planter. So the cost of labor was, was cheaper if you rented it than if you owned it. And if you bought a slave, obviously the, the, the cost of buying a person's labor for life was, was much larger than, than buying the labor of an indentured servant. And yet that was a very uh, difficult bet to make when the, the lives of people, you know, European and African alike, um, in Virginia were so frequently cut short. So uh, the, uh, the practice was indentured servitude throughout the 16-teens and 20s and 30s and 40s. And gradually, you would see more slavery, but you would also see something truly remarkable. I mean, for us, when we think about the history of, of racism in America, I think, you know, kind of re reflexively, we sort of think, well, the farther you go back, the more racist it gets, right? You think, yeah, maybe the 1950s, they were bad, but the 1850s, they were worse. In the 1750s, they must have been, you know, terrible. There was no talk of abolition then, even. But go back to the 1650s. And in the 1650s, you see something that is really remarkable. You see people born in Africa who have achieved their freedom in Virginia, who own land, who oftentimes marry women of European ancestry, who live happily and peacefully side by side with their neighbors, who are members of the local militia, who are members of their Anglican parish vestry, people who are living the, the, the dream. 
And, and, and we know a good bit about these people. One of the most prominent is a man named Anthony Johnson. Um, obviously, this is a, a conjectural drawing. Um, he was born about 1600 in Angola. He was brought to Virginia in 1621. Um, within about five years, he had achieved his freedom. How exactly, we're not sure. But he bought uh, land on the eastern shore of Virginia. Uh, he, he married uh, a woman whose freedom he, he bought, a woman, another woman of African descent. They had children. They had English indentured servants. They had an African slave. He got into a property line dispute with a white neighbor, and he took his white neighbor to court, and a white jury ruled in his favor. I mean, this is really unexpected, you would think. I mean, this, this, this is... Uh, a rugged, rough frontier environment. It seems that the thing that, that was the real dividing line between people wasn't so much black or white. It was free or unfree. You know, did you own your own labor? Were you a freeman or were you not? And in an era where number, or a number of white people didn't own their own labor, that seemed to be the most significant divide. And, and yet, as we know, you know this, this, this great story would come to an end. Um, the tables would turn, and it would become much, much more difficult to be African or of African descent in Virginia. And I think one of the reasons that this happens is because over time, as life expectancies begin to increase, as slavery begins to make, for that reason, more economic sense, but also, and importantly, as more white indentured servants begin to outlive their terms of indenture, and get those 50 acres, or those 75 acres, and, and plant their own fields of tobacco, the tobacco boom in Virginia will become the tobacco bust. I mean, originally, Europeans, they couldn't, they couldn't get enough of the stuff. People loved tobacco. They smoked it, they chewed it, they ground it up into a little powder, um, they, put it, uh, they made teas out of it. They thought that it was medicinal. You know? I mean, what could be better than tobacco? Tobacco that's good for you. They thought it was good for them. And so the demand for, for tobacco in uh, Europe was, was something with which they could barely keep pace for the first several decades. But then when the demand started to level off, the supply of tobacco continued to increase. As people push farther and farther away from uh, Jamestown, um, as they moved to more and more land, basically you could have a plantation anywhere up to the fall line, you know, where the rivers cease to be navigable, and you run into waterfalls and, and, and rapids. People uh, grow more and more tobacco. And you see these indentured servants suddenly becoming the economic competitors of the Virginia gentry, who, of course, are in control of the House of Burgesses. And in 1676 a man who would come to be seen as a leader of the former indentured servants, a man named Nathaniel Bacon, would appeal to the government in Jamestown uh, for relief. Essentially, the settlers in the West were, were running into increased hostility with the Indians. And they wanted the government in Jamestown um, to place forts um, along the frontier. They wanted uh, the government in Jamestown to protect them from the threat of Indians. And what is probably the first example of uh, inauthentic um, and hypocritical uh, political correctness 
in America. The government of Virginia said, oh no, no, no. You know, thou mustn't take the native lands of the, the, the Indian peoples. You know, it wouldn't be right. Of course, you know, those high flyers of the House of Burgesses were themselves living on land that had once been occupied by native people. What, what was bothering them was the prospect for putting more acreage under cultivation and having even more competition. And so the House of Burgesses denied the request of Nathaniel Bacon. And the governor at the time, William Barclay, uh, thought that perhaps his problem was solved. The Indians were useful allies for the planter elite because they reined in the, uh, the extent of expansion. But that answer wasn't good enough for Nathaniel Bacon, and it wasn't good enough for his followers. And so in 1676, they rose up, they first went west and they attacked some Indians, then they went east and they attacked and burned Jamestown. As Governor Barkley marshaled his forces and, 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 and began to regroup, some of Bacon's rebels went to this house across the James River in Surrey County, Virginia. Um, it became known as Bacon's Castle, that counted as a castle, back in the, uh, the 1600s. Um, and there they hold up. Nathaniel Bacon himself would end up dying of what the records describe as the bloody flux. He uh, would die, and the rebellion would die with him. But after Bacon's rebellion, a number of significant changes are made in Virginia and, and with the law. You see it beginning even before 1676. As laws are changed to discourage indentured servitude and promote the permanence of African slavery. So, if you were an enslaved African, it became against the law to buy your freedom. If you were the owner of an enslaved African, it became against the law for you to give him his freedom. If you were a free black man or woman, it became against the law to own a gun. If you were a free black person, it became against the law, and, and, and this, when you really think about it, this is probably the most crushing, the most devastating thing that they could have done. It became against the law to enter into a legally binding contract. In other words, contracts with people from African uh, ancestry were not valid, were not binding. They could not seek protection from the law. If somebody tried to swindle them, they could not use the, the courts to achieve justice. And, and people like Anthony Johnston just vanish from the record books. There was Johnson. There was another uh, settler um, from Africa named Tony Longo. There were about a, a dozen of, of these people who we know about, you know, who we have records of, who lived in Virginia. Six of them married white women. I mean, this was this kind of rugged interracial frontier. And, and yet, because of the House of Burgesses, because of their desire to end indentured servitude, which they did by doing away with the headright system, and by establishing slavery as their main and permanent source of labor, a source of labor that would never be free, that would never get its own land, that would never compete with them. As they did this, they used the law to ensure their own economic dominance, their own wealth. 
And, and, and thus begins you know, the horrible story of slavery in America. Just awful. So racism, no doubt, had something to do with it. But I, I think the, the, the main thing that we should gain, gain from this, it's people using the power of government to provide themselves with these built-in economic advantages through laws that are essentially anti-competitive and exploitative of people from Africa. The story in uh, Plymouth is obviously a different one, but it's also a very sad one. Um, Plymouth, of course, would, would join with the uh, other emerging towns of Massachusetts, and it would become this thriving place. When you look at uh, Massachusetts, you don't see the same climate as you do in other parts of the British uh, colonies in North America. Um, you have a shorter growing season. The soil isn't quite as fertile. Um, it tends to be rockier. It doesn't lend itself to the same kind of plantation agriculture that you see in places like the Carolinas or Virginia or even Pennsylvania. There are plantations in Pennsylvania, oftentimes owned by Quakers um, who grow wheat with African slave labor. The, the old adage is uh, a Quaker is somebody who prays for you one day a week and prays on you the other six. But in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, you have people um, increasingly building wealth in new ways. Now, the original generations, the pilgrims and Puritans, they weren't there for the money. They wanted to have good, comfortable lives, to be sure. But the thing that, that, that caused them to settle in the new world in the first place was their faith. And they were happy enough to have these semi-subsistence family farms where they would you know, cultivate their fields, uh, grow the food that they, they and their family would need in order to, to survive, um, spend their time uh, working, uh, chopping down trees, expanding their fields, clearing them ever more, um, you know, growing old together, um, and, and, and then passing along their, their land to the next generation. And these family farms would continue, and they would continue to proliferate, because as I've mentioned, in Massachusetts, the average family, and this holds true throughout the 1600s into the 1700s, even into the early 1800s, the average family had eight children. So you can imagine the farm, you might be able to, to raise eight children on a farm of a certain degree of acreage, but you certainly can't subdivide it between those eight children and use it to feed your 64 grandchildren. So Massachusetts was a place that was continuously expanding, just like Virginia, continuously pressing into the wilderness, continuously clearing more fields, continuously um, loosening the bands that had connected the first established communities. And some of the people began to realize that they didn't have to just make a living from the land. A number of people began to turn toward commerce, began to see the ocean as, as a great opportunity um, for their advancement. And the level of religious fervor in Massachusetts seems to have declined as well. I mean, you know, you could imagine the first generation risked their lives to cross the ocean for God. I mean, they could not have been more religious. The second generation, raised by those people, pretty darn religious. The third generation, maybe a little bit less religious. The fourth generation, yeah, I'm a Puritan. There are hot girls in my youth group. It's cool. 
And increasingly, you begin to see tensions. Tensions between people who want to embrace the old vision of, of semi-subsistent farms and, and religious devotion and those who are increasingly among the more secular, more cosmopolitan, more worldly, more, more engaged people of Massachusetts who are engaged in commerce and reaching out to other parts of the world. And Salem, by this point, is uh, one of the largest uh, you know, towns in America. Wouldn't call it a city by our standards. But it is one of the biggest seaports in, in uh, British North America. And, and you know what seaports attract. They attract people who come in ships from all other parts of the world. And Salem was very much part of this Atlantic world, this world that was connected to the Caribbean, this world that was connected to Africa, this world that was connected to all parts of Europe, this world that was connected to the Middle East, this world that was connected to other colonies, even Virginia. I mean, these two colonies, Virginia and Massachusetts, at the time of their origin, despite their common failure to grow enough food for themselves, in all other respects, you can't imagine two places that are more different. And yet, through trade, especially as you move through the 17th century and begin to get close to the 18th century, as people are trading goods with one another, they're also sharing ideas with one another. And these colonial British uh, American seaport towns are becoming increasingly cosmopolitan. And that cosmopolitanism and that wealth and that secularism is a source of great tension, especially with people um, who want to reject uh, that way of life and embrace the original vision for New England settlement. And, and this brings us in 1692 to the Salem Witch Trials. Now, Salem, I have to say, was very much behind the times. My hometown of Stratford, Connecticut, burned its first, first witch in 1651, all right? The uh, Salem witches, uh, there were 19 who were hanged. There was one who was pressed to death. And, and a real and true and total tragedy, especially if you don't believe that they were really witches, right? I mean, they, they weren't flying through the air on brooms. These are innocent people who are accused falsely of, of, of witchcraft. Now, why is that? What brought this about? What caused this, this hysteria? Again, there are a number of different theories. Um, there are a number of different uh, books which have made good points. Um, one theory, I, I, I don't know how much stock to put in it, is that uh, there was uh, too much rainfall, and that led to this uh, fungus growing on the wheat that they ate, and that the fungus had psychedelic properties, and, and, and that it may have you know, uh, changed the behavior of the women who were accused of, of witchcraft, or it maybe clouded the judgment of, of the people who you know, accused people of witchcraft. So maybe the, the accusers ate the wheat and then saw the women flying through the air when they really weren't, right? And it wasn't just women, it was also men who were accused of witchcraft. But we should note that the majority of the people accused of witchcraft were women. And the majority of the people accused of witchcraft who were women were single women. And they were single women who owned property. In other words, they were women who, who did not fit the mold 
of Puritan Massachusetts. They were women who did not fulfill the role that the Puritans had imagined women's women to fill. These were women who were able to call their own shots. These were women who had some economic independence. These were women who, who, who perhaps had uh, an economic status that was superior to that of some men. So I think some real economic jealousy is at heart uh, at the heart of the Salem witchcraft trials. There also, I think, is something uh, a little bit larger than just these individual cases of, of women who own property. There's also the fact that this community, Salem, was deeply divided. And, and the, the fault line seemed to be the point at which the people at the seaport were separated from the people who lived back in the rural agricultural area of town. In the, uh, the interior, you have the traditional family farms. On the east side of town, on the left side of, or on the right side of, of the map, that's where you have the seaport. That's where you have the commercially engaged people. That's where you have the tavern keepers. That's where you have um, the merchants. That's where you have people who profit from the Atlantic trade. And that's where you have the people who are accused of witchcraft. On, on this map, which uh, is from uh, a book called Salem Possessed um, by uh, uh, Paul Boyer and Stephen Nissenbaum, you have uh, the, the location of the houses of people accused of witchcraft represented by W's placed in circles. You have the locations of houses of people who came to the defense of accused witches represented by people labeled with the letter D. And you have accusers, their households represented by the letter A. I mean, the divide is really very clear. It was the people in the commercially engaged part of town who were being accused of witchcraft. It was the people in the more traditional side of town who were doing the accusing. And, and for more than a year, from, from February of 1692 to May of, 7, of 1693, you, you have this community torn apart by these accusations of witchcraft. And, and, and I think it's, it's almost inescapable to see this as, a, as another instance of, of the tyranny of the majority, of people using the law to target those who they did not like, using the law to target those who engaged in commerce of which they did not approve, using the law to target those who had more than them, using the law and using their religion to, to, to vent you know, one of the, the greatest sins, the sins of, of, of jealousy and covetousness at, at, at these innocent people. So the story of the, uh, the Salem witch trials is a sad tale indeed. And I think that, that all of this together you know, provides us with um, a cautionary tale. While, while it's true that private property saved America, while it's true that, that getting the incentive system right allowed for great prosperity, both in Virginia and in Massachusetts, it's also true that in each instance, in each case, people would use government to take from others what was not theirs. They would use government to deprive Africans of their freedom. 
to make it so that Africans and African Americans couldn't even own themselves. They would use government to take the lives away from their cultural and economic competitors in Jamestown. So, so capitalism and the market and trade can bring about great prosperity. But that alone, that alone doesn't guarantee happiness. It's, it's also a government that is restrained, restrained from violating people's rights, restrained from injuring the people it was designed to, to protect. It's, it's government that can undo all of the happiness that a free society can build. Well, thank you very much. So we have some time for questions. Yeah. yeah. About the witchcraft, uh, a few years earlier, there was a witchcraft craze throughout Europe. And I mean, in Scotland, you'd walk along the coast and see the little cells where they kept the witches while they were being held for trial. And then, right. of course, they were all found guilty. Uh, and uh, I guess in uh, in the Scandinavian, in Denmark and uh, Germany, I think uh, I, I'm not a I haven't studied it in great detail, but apparently there was a mass uh, European uh, witchcraft craze, and that must have had some influence on the slightly sure. later arising of it in uh, Massachusetts. Yeah, there, there's a book, I forget the name of the author, called Worlds of Wonder, Days of Judgment, and it, and it, you know, it, it delves into this sort of transatlantic worldview that, I mean, we shouldn't discount the fact that people sincerely believed that witchcraft was real. <laughs> They, sincere, you know, they sincerely believed that. I'm not saying that 100% of the people in Salem believed it, but it, it was a real part of their world. It was a, 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 they considered it to be an actual possibility. Um, and, and, and yet, we know who they're pointing their fingers at. You know, they're, they're always pointing their fingers at the people who are their competitors. They're always pointing their fingers at the people who are outsiders. They're always pointing their fingers at the people of, about whom they're jealous. They're always pointing their fingers at the people who don't fit in. You know, in my hometown in Stratford, I, I mentioned, um, we, uh, I think I said Byrne, she was hanged uh, in 1651, our, our first and only witch. Her name was, it's Good, good Wife Bassett is, is how she's known. I'm not sure of her first name, I don't think it's in the records, but she was new to town. You know, it's not a surprise that she was new to town. That she had just arrived about nine months earlier. You know, that she would be the one who was accused of witchcraft. So, I mean, it's interesting. And, and certainly, you know, one of the things that's so fun about history and challenging about it is you really need to try to get into the heads of these people who inhabit a, a radically different world. You know, the, I mean, the, the saying is the past is a foreign country. Sometimes the past is a whole other planet, it seems. Um, but, but I think you're right to point out, I mean, there is this, this sort of transatlantic view that witchcraft is a real thing. And it is, you know, uh, accusations are, are common throughout the 1600s. And, and, and I wonder, I mean, I wonder what the cause of that is. And a hunch? is that we have you know, the, the rise of modernity. We, we have you know, sort of the end of the dark ages and the beginnings of the enlightenment. I mean, this is a time of, in some ways, great flux. And, and I could imagine how that would be disconcerting to a lot of people. So thank you. Yes? So you mentioned getting into the heads of people there. So my question relates to what they um, 
understood about their chances of living. So you mentioned 50% mortality rates. You describe a winter where five out of six people starved. Uh, you politely describe the uh, bloody, bloody flux, which uh, probably wasn't quite so polite. Uh, right. We've watched it. Uh, there was malaria. There was yellow fever. Uh, there was death all around. Yet you uh, describe um, uh, indentured servants versus purchasing slaves. And the reason slaves were expensive was because you're buying their lifetime. But th their lifetime should have been sold at a significant discount right. because it wasn't very long. Right. Yet um, it was obviously, you looked all around you, it wasn't going to be very long, yet they weren't being sold at a sufficient discount. So did they not appreciate the extent of death around them? Were they uh, extremely optimistic? Um, you know, if you, it sounds like if you were back then, you looked around to your left and to your right, it'd be one of those classic things where one or two of you won't be there uh, uh, come right. one year from now. Yeah, that sounds like they didn't act that way. The ships kept coming. Uh, what, what was going on in their heads that they um, uh, didn't appreciate the severity or likelihood of death and even when it comes down to the economics of purchasing labor, it appears that they didn't uh, properly price it. I'm not sure, and I, you know, I don't know. I don't have figures uh, regarding you know, the average cost of uh, a year's worth of labor for an indentured servant and the average cost of uh, a year's worth of, of labor for someone who was permanently enslaved. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm going to guess, though, that the market didn't get it wrong, that you know, people may have made bad decisions, but that over time and overall, um, you know, this was a, a competitive market. People entered into individual contracts to sell their labor. I am guessing that the people in, in London, you know, who lined up and got on board those ships as indentured servants, probably overestimated their chances of survival. Um, and I'm guessing that they probably underestimated the, the hardships that they would come to face in Virginia. Um, and there is evidence of, like, actual real propaganda um, being pumped out by the Virginia Company. Depictions of Virginia that show it as this land of plenty, um, that, that depict harmonious relations with um, the native people, which wasn't always the case, which minimize um, some of the death and devastation, um, you know, which make it seem almost like this, this Eden, this paradise. Um, so I think it may be one of the things that made indentured servitude um, so, so prevalent is that it was just so easy. It was just so easy to get people to enter into these contracts and cross the ocean. When you think about slavery, I mean, slavery is truly bizarre. I mean, I don't want to uh, undercut the fact that it is you know, something that has existed throughout history, throughout the world. But when you think about it, at least from our modern perspective, slavery is utterly bizarre. If you own a convenience store, let's say, and you want to hire someone to work the night shift, do you put up a help wanted sign? Or do you send someone to a foreign country to kidnap someone and bring them here against their will? You, you, you know? And, and uh, while the slave trade is getting increasingly systematic, and while the slave trade is getting uh, you know, increasingly lucrative for the people who engage in it, um, it's still pretty new in, in Virginia um, in the 1600s. And they don't really turn to it to the same degree that, that uh, the Portuguese and Brazil and the Spanish um, are turning to it uh, in, in, in the Caribbean. Um, so, uh, you know, it's something that I think it's, it's changing over time. But, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, but I'm, I'm not sure that the pricing was, was, was wrong.
I mean, I, I find that um, I'm somewhat skeptical of, of that proposition. Yes? Firstly, thank you, Rob, for your lecture. Um, your thesis is um, obviously that collectivism and vice almost destroyed America um, before it even really got started. Um, but you know, there's the, the parallel argument that um, that same vice and jealousy and kind of um, uh, ignorance of property rights that existed from, um, from, from the whites on the Native Americans from whom they were taking the land also made America. Mm -hmm. um, Dinesh D'Souza in his recent movie, America, has his answers uh, to, in defense of America and in defense of that perspective. Um, but I just was interested in how you would answer that question. Yeah, well, I think there's certainly there's an element of truth to that. I mean, you know, it's 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 difficult in the in the state of nature that was the American continent prior to European settlement. How, how do you establish, you know, legal and that's what we're talking about in this case, property rights, or how do you establish moral, if if you if you wish, property rights? Um, the, the 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 native people themselves. I don't mean to excuse the English by saying this, but the native people themselves. Were a bunch of warring, competing nations, you know, who would who would regularly war with one another, who would regularly acquire through through means of force territory from one another. They're really not all that different than the English who, who came here and settled. We have some examples, you know, and they're they're um, examples that we take note of because they are so rare, you know, of of people buying the island of Manhattan from the local people or William Penn you know, paying Indians for land. I mean, we do have some examples of people doing that. So it wasn't beyond their comprehension. Um, but for most English people, um, they would come and they would settle and they would take, we, we should know a couple of things, the native population of the, of the New World had been decimated in the previous 100 years. I mean, ever since uh, Columbus arrived in 1492, um, the spread of European diseases had cut the Native American population of North and South America from an estimated high of 25 to 50 million people to between 500,000 and 1 million people, all before 1600. So I mean, this is a world that has been kind of radically destabilized and, the, and, and, and a population that has been truly decimated. So, so for many Europeans, um, they would, it was kind of eerie. They would see evidence of Indian habitations that were abandoned. Um, many would arrive with their own diseases in parts of the New World that maybe had been untouched by, by you know, contagions of various sorts. The local Indian population would, would fall victim. So it was very uh, difficult, I think, for a lot of Englishmen to resist taking something that was just so easy to get. You know, they have the technological advantage of uh, superior rep weaponry, um, and especially um, as, as they begin to establish firmer and more permanent uh, settlements, Time is clearly on their side. I mean, the, the English-speaking population of North America doubles every 20 years. And, and this is a land where people are engaged predominantly in agriculture. So they are going to be gobbling up more and more and more land um, as, as they continue to farm. And that, I think, is, I think I mentioned this earlier. I mean, it makes sense why the French um, would be the, the, the natural allies um, of most Indians in the French and Indian War. Um, because their mode of settlement was, was so different from that of the English, which was just so, you know, truly destructive to the native population. So thanks. Yes? Um, I was wondering, do we know what happened to the property of the executed witches? Because that would support 
your hypothesis that this was a ploy to get land. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I'm, I don't think that the law meant that if you were accused of witchcraft, you, you lost your property. I'm going to assume that it would be passed on to a next of kin or you know, somebody, somebody else who you had designated. Um, I might be wrong about that, though. That's a, it's a really great question. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, like their their house or their their possessions, I'm not I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I I mean, this is a world of you know, despite the 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 rising abundance that you see trade bringing to the seaport of Salem, it's still the 1600s. It's a world of of scarcity. I I, I can't imagine that 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 they would wantonly destroy, um, you know, too too much. But yeah. Yes. Hi. Um, first off, I really enjoyed your talk. I had never heard the story of Anthony Johnson before, and I'm uh -huh. from the eastern shore of Virginia, and my family's been there since, uh, I think, 1630s. Was oh, argument. wow. And, uh, but my question, you partially answered it already, about William Penn and some contracts that we do know about between settlers and Indians, and maybe on a smaller scale, because my understanding of Native American property rights is it's a bit, I mean, very different than the colonists and right. how that worked. Well, it's, it's diverse. I mean, you know, the, the, so the, peop, the, the people of Native America are an incredibly diverse people. And, um, you know, the diversity is driven in part by the different ways in which they provided for themselves. Um, Indians who lived uh, along the, the ocean would feed themselves by fishing. Um, Indians who lived in the eastern woodlands um, would feed themselves primarily through agriculture. Indians who lived in the Great Plains um, would, would be hunters and, and gatherers. Um, you know, when, you're, when you talk about Great Plains Indians, they are nomadic. So obviously their tradition of property rights is going to be very different than the, the by that point, United States tradition of property rights. And you can imagine how difficult it would have been for the, the settlers from the east of the United States in the 1800s moving west to peacefully coexist with the Plains Indians. I mean, you can't have uh, Indians chasing um, a herd of, of bison across your cornfield, right? I mean, the, the, the two things, they just don't mix. Um, so there you could, you could understand why there would be you know, such a, a showdown and such an incompatibility. But I think what's tragic is um, when, when Indians are engaged in agriculture, um, it's, it's really uh, terrible to see that they, there can't be some coexistence. And you know, moving beyond the colonial period, um, probably the most you know, tragic and, and clear example of of what I'm talking about would be Indian removal in the, uh, in the 1820s uh, and, and 30s um, during the administrations of Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren. Um, you know, Jefferson and Washington, uh, they had a vision for how whites and Native Americans could peacefully coexist. They thought that if the Native Americans would pick up the plow, intermarry with us, live according to our laws, you know, we will be a, a great people together. And, and there in Northwest Georgia, um, the Indians, the, the Creeks, the Cherokees, they were doing just that. I mean, they legally owned their lands. Um, they built plantation houses in the Greek revival style. They owned black slaves. They, they had their own newspapers. Um, when, when the Georgia legislature made the move to dispossess them of their lands because um, in addition to being good land for growing cotton, they had discovered gold on it, 
you know, that story, you'd think that would be the best day of your life, but for them it's a terrible day because now the majority of the, the white people in Georgia want that land. They want to take it from them. And, 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 and how do they respond? They respond in, in, in the most uh, American of ways. They file a lawsuit. They go to court. They take it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court rules in their favor, you know, in Worcester versus Georgia. And, and, and yet, you know, Jackson supposedly, famously, infamously said, you know, let the court enforce that decision. I'm not going to. And, and, and so, I mean, I think it just shows how, how covetousness, you know, covetousness, how um, greed, how people, I mean, we, we understand that we live in a world with, with lots of, of, of people who do bad things. And, and that's just a, a reality, right? But when people who do bad things seize control of government, that's when it's really, really awful. Um, because they could use the government, you know, which has the legal monopoly on force, um, to take whatever they wish. And uh, it is, it's a, it's a sad story. Um, thank you again for your talk and perhaps building on that last question. Um, I'm curious, uh, beyond the hazards of <clears throat> collectivism during the starving times in Jamestown. Was there a corresponding collapse in trade with the Powhatan people? And had there been commerce between them beforehand? Had they, there been a give and take perhaps that also collapsed and contributed to the starvation? Uh, well, I mean, they were reliant upon the Powhatans for their food. Um, it, you know, a, a great source is, uh, there's a wonderful old book by Edmund Morgan called American Slavery, American Freedom, which came out in 1976, uh, or 1977. But he, he, he points out um, that they had this really uneven relationship with the Powhatans. Um, you know, one year they would be at war, another year they would be at peace and they would be trading. Um, in the early years, there was probably more peace than war because the, the Indians uh, knew that the English were completely reliant upon them. And they could have finished the English off. And they chose not to. They chose not to because the English brought them access to a whole world of, of goods that they had never seen before. Um, so you know, whenever a, a, a ship came, came over you know, to resupply the colony, um, it was bringing not only supplies for the people of Jamestown, but also supplies that the people of Jamestown could use to, to trade you know, for Indian corn. Um, so I think that that goes on uh, mostly during the starving time. It's, it's, it's maybe ironic, but, but that's when, you know, the, the, the need of the Europeans for the Indians is greatest. Um, it's after they start to grow their own corn, after they start to grow their own tobacco, after they, you know, uh, improve their ability to feed themselves and provide for themselves, that the Englishmen really have little use for the Indians. And, and that's when, the, you know, the, the strife between the two um, becomes the most intense. Um, and that's when the Indians really kind of get pushed back toward the frontier. So I guess we have time for one more. Yes, uh, do you know the origin of witchcraft? Is that a religious concept? Or where did that come from? I, was it, how, where, do you know where it started in history? That's a good question. I, I mean, I, I always sort of assumed that it went back, you know, essentially as far back as, uh, as civilization itself. Um, you know, witchcraft conceived in, in different ways, uh, you know, uh, ancient tribes with medicine men and, uh, you know, a belief in uh, a cosmology that, uh, you know, people can, and I'm, I lack the vocabulary for this, uh, but, you know, interact with the supernatural. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, that's, that's my guess. I don't know if, uh, if anyone knows more. 
But if they do, uh, I guess we'll talk about it during the break. So thank you very much.